This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Every day, people make life or death decisions about who receives protection from the risk of persecution or serious harm. How can we ensure that these decisions are fair, transparent and provide protection for those who need it? This was the subject of the 2019 Caldor Centre Annual Conference, which examined the theme, Good Decisions, Achieving Fairness in Refugee Law, Policy and Practice. The conference was opened by Caldor Centre Acting Director, Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill, who provided a review of the key developments of 2019. Welcome. My name is Guy Goodwin-Gill, and on behalf of Professor Jane McAdam and myself, Welcome to this, the sixth annual conference of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Now, this centre is a great, a wonderful initiative, which we owe to the kindness and the generosity of Andrew and Renata Caldor, and to the fantastic support which we have here at UNSW, from the law school, from colleagues with intersecting and complementary interests, from the Dean, Professor George Williams, and from the Associate Dean, Professor Andrea Durbach. As any of you will know who have ever been in touch with the Centre, we actually have a wonderful team. Francis Voon and Francis Nolan, Madeleine Gleeson and Claire Higgins, Lauren Martin and Sangeeta Pillai, as well as, well as an amazing group of doctoral students, many of whom I'm glad to say are here today and I'm sure you will meet some of them too. And it's their energy, their spirit, their commitment, their skills that get a day like today together and which make it, as I hope you'll find, so productive and so enjoyable. And the centre has been busy, I'm glad to say. Among other things, our principles for Australian refugee policy were launched in June and they've been widely distributed including, I would say, to every member of the federal parliament, so no excuses then. Now these principles, and you'll find copies readily available, are practical and pragmatic and draw on models of good practice here and elsewhere. And above all, they are evidence-based. They're not airy-fairy, because when it comes to protecting refugees and finding solutions, we are all interested in what works effectively, efficiently, and humanely. In like fashion, our policy brief on complementary pathways to protection by Claire Higgins was launched just last week, and it sets out to show clearly and concisely how states can do much more, how states like Australia can do a lot to ease the search for protection and solutions, and so go some way towards reducing the necessity, and I emphasize that word necessity, reducing the necessity for many of the world's displaced to fall back on risky, life-threatening, and often deadly alternatives. And over the past year, we have continued to collaborate with the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, both through the regional representative in Canberra, Louise Aubin, and also on the basis of our long-standing working relationships with the UN and with UNHCR colleagues in Geneva and around the world. 
And our cadre of dedicated doctoral students do keep us actively engaged and informed about regional and thematic issues. And it's their contact with what's going on here and elsewhere that I think keeps us grounded in real-life challenges. But to that, it's also asked we add our strong legal and international law capacity, and that allows us to maintain an active support and information-sharing role with legal centres and advocacy groups throughout and beyond Australia. And the importance of these linkages should not be underestimated as we look to a future in which basic principles of refugee protection will continue to be challenged. A future where these principles will need to be advocated strongly from the ground up, filling the vacuum left by the proven inefficiency, the proven harmful outcomes of too many top-down government policies disconnected from life as it's lived. And as we look towards that, that bright future, it is clear that we and our colleagues, all of us here today, in body or spirit, will need to keep a weather eye on the series of overlapping, sometimes interlocking issues, the very future of the international protection regime itself, regional cooperation and developments in the face of present or likely outflows, the accelerating impact of climate change, collaboration with partners, including emerging scholars in the Asia-Pacific region, and the possibilities and prospects, distant though they may seem at times to be, the prospect of re-establishing Australian law and policy on an even keel and recovering that basic humanity which community outreach tells us time and again is still there. It's two years since I last uh, spoke to this conference, and it may seem that little has changed for the better. This suit is still the same suit. <laughs> At another level also, it is true, and, but sad to see, that elements within government and parliament still engage in misinformation, in disinformation, and in propagandizing for narrow parochial and political purposes propagandizing the often desperate situation of the refugee, the asylum seeker, the migrant, and even the local poor. At many another level, though, there is some good news, even if good news must itself be qualified from time to time. Beru's Berani is free at last, though without prospect yet of a durable solution. Hakim Al-Arabi avoided extradition to his country of origin in no small measure due to the support which he received from civil society. But his case, too, still raises questions, unanswered questions, about the extent to which refugee protection has truly worked its way into the psyche of today's bureaucracy. But also elsewhere, we find models of commendable behavior, of capacity for good. Australians in Canada, for example, combining to use that country's tried and tested private sponsorship scheme to bring refugees otherwise left without hope in inhumane conditions in PNG and Nauru to a new life in Canada. And Australians in the United States as well, getting together, following through and stepping up to welcome those rescued through President Obama's initiative. And of course, there are anniversaries to celebrate. There are always anniversaries to celebrate. 35 years since the Cartagena Declaration, 
50 years since the organization of African unity, now the African Union adopted its own convention for, on refugee problems in Africa. 100 years since the League of Nations was set up and the seeds were sown of the present imperfect regime of refugee protection, which, if that ever-elusive political will can be nailed down, may finally make that quantum leap from the rhetoric of cooperation to the concreteness of action. And since we last met in, September, in November 2018, the UN General Assembly has adopted those two global compacts which were called for by the 2016 New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants. Yes, unanimity was missing, unfortunately. But sufficiently large numbers of states have formally recognized the need for greater international cooperation and greater commitment on both fronts. The Global Compact on Refugees was adopted by 181 votes in favor, two against, three abstentions. That on migration, by 152 in favor, five against, and 12 abstentions. Australia voted for refugees but abstained on migration. Apparently, it was thought that the migration compact might get in the way of the government spending lots of money on detention, which nobody apparently wanted. The question is, though, will a vote for refugees translate into an Australian commitment to refugees? Now, this global compact on refugees, not surprisingly, has received a great deal of critical comment. It was, after all, a negotiated deal between states with limited input from refugees or host communities themselves, and it left many dissatisfied. And there's a comprehensive selection of those different perspectives and views in a special issue last year of the International Journal of Refugee Law. But still, what will count is what happens next, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But just now, what I want to do is to celebrate for a moment, to celebrate today this, this coming together for which we are especially appreciative to the university, the faculty, our donors, our generous sponsors, our hard-working volunteers. And today, we welcome participants from all over Australia, from Perth, from Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, of course, and participants also from Canada and New Zealand. And we have among us a wonderfully mixed group of scholars and judges and tribunal members of refugees and asylum seekers, of NGOs and civil society. And we welcome especially those with lived experience as refugees and displaced, not just among the ardent listeners, that's you, not just among the ardent listeners, but up here sharing what they have been through and where and how they think we might go. But. Yes, there is always a but. Not, I think, that we should be surprised, for the, the causes of displacement, multiple and complex as they are, still need to be addressed coherently and consistently, both within existing institutional frameworks, such as the UN, and by thinking and acting outside the box. Using information technology, perhaps, to pinpoint incipient disasters more rapidly and accurately, and even to hone in on the policies and practices which cause refugee displacement, and on those responsible for causing refugee displacement. We are still not that good with the deep questions. The Syrian conflict is not over, 
It will be one day, but it will then be followed by a complex of new challenges involving return, rebuilding, restoration, and the reconstruction of social relations. The price for failure on those tasks yet to come, the price for inadequate commitment to solutions founded on social justice will, as we know full well from experience, be yet more displacement. The crisis in Myanmar is not over either, and Bangladesh needs support, moral and material. It needs proactive, future-oriented assistance that will allow it, among other things, to leverage, to take advantage, as it should do, for having acted on our behalf in granting refuge to the Rohingya displaced. It needs to leverage that good act into local development to the benefit of their people and those they have welcomed. And again, the price of failure will be further displacement. Remember Europe 2015-2016. And something worrying is going on in India with so-called citizenship reviews shrouding what looks and feels like a hostile policy built on race and religious profiling. And in the middle of UNHCR's ambitious campaign to abolish statelessness by 2024, what will those deprived of their nationality then do? And if we turn to look in the other direction, if we turn to look east for a moment, we can see still the, the near-perfect storm of multiple causes and drivers of displacement that has settled over Venezuela. More than four million have left their country since 2014. Most, as we know, finding refuge in, Amer in the Americas, but many are without documentation, without formal permission to remain or work, and that means vulnerability to trafficking and exploitation host communities increasingly overstretched. So, as always, a mix of the positive and the negative. And that led me to think and leads me to think a little bit more about the task that we set for ourselves. Now, one goal that we have in the Caldor Center, and we're not unique in this, I know, is to ensure that we produce quality research, which means research backed and informed by scholarship, <coughs> excuse me, evidence-based research, which can serve as the foundations for policies that best serve refugees, the nation, and the people. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier, our research draws not only on the experience of others around and across the globe, but also factors in today's concerns, many of them real if enough, if not always that well-founded, concerns about security, about costs, and of course about the apprehensions that always come with change. And like most of us here today, we, we make certain assumptions and we take those assumptions for granted, rarely, I think, questioning them. We think of government as accountable in meaningful ways beyond the occasional ballot box. Above all, we assume that reason and progress have a symbiotic relationship and that respect for human rights, for human dignity and truth are values necessarily shared in common. Now, perhaps this speaks to a certain naivety on our part or to some pitiable disconnect between the academic and the real world, between civil society on the one hand and those who claim to govern on the other. And time and again, we can see here and in other countries, governments having or displaying little or no interest in evidence-based policy, often rather the reverse. And you can see that looking at any Senate inquiry, for example, on migrational citizenship and at how government responds. On the one hand, you will see copious, 
well-detailed, well-founded submissions from civil society and a range of stakeholders, commonly offering sensible, viable alternative ways to reach stated policy goals. And on the other side, the government side, nothing. Nada. Zilch. No attempt to engage in a reasoned discussion or counter-argument, but rather and too often a simple parroting of old tropes, irrespective of cost, efficiency, or harm done. And of course, there are examples of this discourse also out there that follows on from that government inability to respond. Typical is one treasurer's fantasy of negative globalism, which some of you may have read about in the newspapers. And I suppose it's the variation on Trumpism, the, 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 the international version of the deep state, the deep interstate, that supposedly, and he said, unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy seeking to impose its will on poor little Australia. Or listen again to the, no, perhaps not again, but listen to the meanderings of a former foreign minister claiming that refugees are owed protection only temporarily until they can return home. <laughs> And how many refugee situations, former foreign minister, did you bring to an end? How many conflicts did Australia prevent, mediate, or resolve? What are you actually doing, former foreign minister, in our near neighborhood, in our region or beyond, to make the temporary real, to ensure that refugees can and do find a durable solution before their lives are wasted away by your platitudes and short-sighted, pointless policies? And answers, of course, come there none, but then the former foreign minister was talking in Hungary, which could explain a lot, including yet another facile remark that migrants should integrate, not live together in separate ghettos. Is that then why governments cut back on language tuition or on access to education or on community support mechanisms or why it fails to promote skills recognition and so forth? You really should have been here, Mr. Former Foreign Minister, when we welcomed to UNSW the Canadian Minister for Immigration who reminded us clearly, if you want integration, you must invest in integration. And all in all, listening to such nonsense can be quite a downer. <laughs> but it does raise questions about what we are trying to do and whether we are going about it the right way. Because it's not just ignorance, is it? It's not just ignorance that blames the refugee for trying to find security or pretends that paying smugglers for passage means you're unworthy rather than utterly desperate or that insists migrants should disperse rather than live amongst a supportive community or pretends refugee crises are temporary. No, it's not just ignorance. Though ignorance and stupidity should never be entirely discounted. No, it's deliberate. Deliberate in the sense that political gain is thought to lie from demonizing the other, whether she be a refugee, a migrant, or simply poor. And that is thought to divert attention from accountability for failure. And it seems to sell newspapers too. There's none so deaf as those who will not hear, nor so blind as those who will not see. So should we give up? Abandon the challenge? Of course not. That was indeed a foolish question on my part, because that's not the way we are, is it? We're not wired that way. And we are here today because we are those others who are keen to learn, keen to do the right thing, keen to ensure that in our daily life, whatever the tasks at hand, the spark, no, the fire of common humanity will continue to burn bright. And it's a multifaceted belief that we have, one of many parts built of many creeds and united by common immutable principles that none should be placed 
in harm's way, no child, no woman, no boy, no girl, no man. Only too evident today, however, is the fact that we can no longer assume that leadership on matters of principle and doctrine will come from above, whether from government, the UN, or even UNHCR. Too often at too, and at too many a level, we do find significant and worrying knowledge gaps among those who seek to formulate policy. And there can be many reasons for that. There is a lack of knowledge out there. And there are many who, perhaps for understandable reasons, just do not know of the depth and the breadth of international protection, its deep historical foundation in law and practice and principle. Many also now may be too detached from the grassroots, from the challenges involved in fighting for protection in the front line, or too detached from the lives of those whose claims must be made, and for whom we as refugee lawyers and community activists must advocate now as we have done in the past. So there are many gaps that remain to be filled, and governments and institutions, international and national, will always be part of the picture. But we need to do more and to find other paths of influence and impact. And doctrinal leadership, I think, begins from below, from the understanding that we develop in our work with the cases that are actually people's lives. And it often begins in that hard graft, which comes with searching for, locating, finding, the evidential argumentative principled approach that would ensure that those in need get the protection to which they're entitled. So where next? The Global Compact contains potential for change. With its orientation to commitments, to pledges to follow up, its indicators of progress, it may be the catalyst for the quantum leap that the international refugee regime has long needed. Two caveats. I use the word may simply to remind myself and us that much will depend on the actions of others. And a quantum leap. A quantum leap used to mean an abrupt change, but often just a small one rather than a massive change that we tend to assume today. And that's actually quite a useful perspective, I think, and it might help if we consider all the small or relatively small contributions to which states could commit that together may lead to more fundamental reconfigurations. And next month, the Global Refugee Forum, the first of the Global Compact's follow-up sessions, will meet in Geneva, and that will allow states like Australia to step up to the plate to make pledges on the key components. Will more refugees find protection and solutions? Security, self-reliance, a living, a livelihood for themselves and for their children, education and advancement. Will more host communities acting on behalf of us for those who are displaced, be enabled, empowered, not just to cope, but to build local resilience, to become stronger, to develop. Now, there are many ways in which Australia could step up to the plate, in which it could commit. It could, for example, commit to protecting access to asylum. That might be a novel thing. But that would mean investing in front-loading, in independent decision-making, in credible appeal and review. That would mean committing to avoid arbitrary detention and the deliberate wasting of human life. It commit, could commit to doing more on resettlement. It used to be the case that 80% of those admitted under Australia's humanitarian program came from those identified by UNHCR as in need. Now it's only some 23%. And we have a positive record on resettlement. We used to know well how best to help and manage those who will be the new Australians. And in solidarity with other states, Australia can and should recommit 
to this humanitarian imperative increase the numbers and pay heed to those in special need. No less should it commit to those complementary pathways I mentioned earlier, because the program, the humanitarian program, doesn't need to be the only way. We can and should think outside the box. Family reunion, too, needs some rethinking. It tends to be narrowly, the family tends to be narrowly construed and seen as naturally nuclear, uh, rather than the round, extended, mutually dependent and supportive. And families work when it comes to successful integration. And on integration, as I mentioned, there is a great need for investment. A great need, no less, for ensuring that the refugee voice is integrated into thinking about policy and practice is heard more loudly, both here and beyond our borders. And so to today, which brings me to the meaningful part of the conference, good decisions, achieving fairness in refugee law, policy and practice. Deciding whether someone is a refugee, sometimes referred to as RSD, Refugee Status Determination, is key to the effective good faith implementation of the 1951 Convention and the 1967 Protocol. Many states also see that good decision-making can be key to what they are especially keen on these days, which is gatekeeping. Now, given that individual rights and international law are prominent also in this picture, the scene, as you can see, is set for a sometimes tense standoff between competing interests. So perhaps we should not be entirely surprised when we find some governments tending to load the dice. But good decision-making in refugee matters is also a subfield of good administration generally in any democratic representative government that subscribes to the rule of law. As in that field, RSD demands due process, procedural and substantive. It demands, again, as the empirical evidence shows, sensitivity to cultures and events that many of us can scarcely envision. It requires decision makers to look to the past while deciding on the future, and then to give reasons for decisions, perhaps the most visible requirement of democratic process. And with all that in mind, and more to come, and you have been through the program already, I hope, with all that in mind and more to come, I am absolutely delighted to hand over now to Andrew Caldor, who will introduce our keynote speaker to this very full and textured program, Hilary Evans Cameron, who comes to us from Canada with a wealth of experience, and as you will discover, is a wonderful speaker. Thank you.